Please remain standing as we read the Scripture. Scripture comes from Exodus 19, 4 through 8. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do whatever the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Andrew. Good evening. (laughs) Try that again. Good evening. Yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, My name is Holly Tubbs. I'm the director of children's ministries here at Bethany, which means that it is my privilege to pastor kids and their families. So it is also a privilege to be here and speak to adult brains. So thank you for uh, allowing me the the honor. so this morning I was at Eastside. Um, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar. We have a campus over in Kirkland, and we were, uh, we were over there, and it was just so great to see everyone. Um, I loved it, and uh, it's nice to be back here at Green Lake, though. So I will say the Eastside in general, Seattle in general, is pretty fascinating to me. I moved up here about five, five and a half years ago now from Georgia, which is not close. And I, everything I knew about Seattle, I had gotten from uh, Sleepless in Seattle or Grey's Anatomy, which meant that I knew about rain and ferry boats. I also was really concerned, based on Grey's Anatomy, how many emergencies you guys had up here. But I think those were just plot devices now. I've been here five years, it's been pretty cool, so. Uh, my astonishment at the things of Seattle was something that I think I carry because, you know, the South is a whole other world. Um, Richard usually says he feels less culture shock going from Seattle to Europe than he does going like from Seattle to New Orleans. And, uh, and I, I hear that. That's pretty true. You know, I, I got here and uh, didn't know quite what to do with recycling. <laughs> like, well, we burn our trash, you know. And, uh, you know, that was new. I kept hearing this word, oofta, which apparently means something in Ballard. Um, I I still am not sure what, so apologies if it's terrible. It's not. Um, I also, my my favorite, one of my favorite stories of acclimating to Seattle was the Solstice Parade, (laughs) which I attended because I was told there would be funnel cakes. And so cut to me eating a funnel cake as a bunch of, as we would call them in the South, naked as a jaybird people just ride by. I was just like, oh. <laughs> Didn't quite know what to do with that. But I love being here. I will say that my, um, 
My wide-eyed wonder at the Pacific Northwest is not the only thing I've gotten from my upbringing in the South. Another thing that I've gotten is a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to the text we're going to look at today. Uh, Exodus 32 and 33, as a kid, just to be real, I hated whenever we read these books. Whenever we had to read any of the books at the beginning of the Bible, I would just be like, oh! And part of that is because I grew up in this church, the Southern Baptist Church, with a lot of really lovely people, also a lot of rules. And I was like this little ADD kid with a mullet and like bad teeth that could barely keep the rules I already knew about. So when someone was like, hey, let's read the book of the law, I was like, ah, I don't want to do that. Like, no, thank you. Ignorance is bliss. I don't need more rules. And so, uh, so that makes sense. However, I will say that, you know, seminary classes and sermons and Bible studies later, um, I know better. But I think that we do still, I just want to kind of address this before we move into the passage. There are a lot of pieces of the Old Testament that we might not know what to do with. And so, you know, I personally am like, tell me more about Jesus, the guy who treats women like equals, and he cuts the Pharisees down to size, and he turns water into wine. I'm like, woo! Um, and then you get to the Old Testament, and the Israelites are just like, oh, and God's like, oh, oh, oh. I'm just like, oh! So, it's a little intense sometimes. And I say that because I think that, that those confusing pieces can discourage us from really entering into these passages, and I want us to name it and move forward anyway. It's okay to have questions and theories or confusion as we read, but I just want to say this. Scripture is not a millennial story. It's not a Gen X story or a boomer story. It's not an Old Testament story or a New Testament story. It is God's story, and whether you believe that everything in the scripture is, is, is to be interpreted as literally as it's written down, or if you hold things in a more loose um, kind of interpretation or hermeneutic or whatever, um, <laughs> nerd word, uh, whether, you, whether you hold either of those things or somewhere in between, let us enter into the text today to say that regardless, everything here is useful. Everything here in the story of Israel is a lens through which we can not only see this boundless, unfathomable God, but also the very limited humanity of the Israelites, which I think we can identify with. So today, as we look at the passages, we'll examine this specific part of Israel's story in three acts, identity found, identity lost, and identity restored. We'll see what happens when God is not right in front of us. When the chaos of life and, the, and the, the craziness of our world distracts us and our identity in God begins to crumble. And we'll also see that these are the moments in which we are called to remember who God is, who we are in him, and with that, return to him. So let's begin with identity found. You know, last week you guys were in Exodus 18, and if you want to turn with me today, we're in Exodus 32. Uh, basically, if Exodus was a TV show, then we've skipped from season two to season five, which is fine. But just so you have context, let's do a quick last time on Exodus recap. Uh, between Exodus 19 and 32, a lot is happening. Um, in chapter 19, the Israelites are straight out of Egypt, um, 
and they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai after a couple weeks, and God meets them there, which is cool. This is the first corporate experience of God. This is the first time that God has actually come to be with his people without you know, just using a messenger or a proxy. And this is a memorable occasion for the Israelites because God comes in pretty hot. <laughs> he comes in and there's lightning and thunder and these really loud trumpet blasts and the people are like, what is happening? And he speaks the words that eventually become the Ten Commandments and over the next several chapters establishes what becomes the Mosaic Covenant. Now the Mosaic Covenant is, it serves as a, to set the nation of Israel apart and we, we read part of that just now to set the nation of Israel apart from all other nations as God's chosen people. Also an interesting tidbit in chapter 24, uh, after the Israelites agree to the covenant, Moses begins throwing animal blood on everybody, which apparently was to seal the covenant, but still feels a bit like a party foul. <laughs> so the covenant, has all of these things in it that make up what uh, could be called the law, greatest hits. So here we get the Ten Commandments, plus a bunch of other rules about property and violence and justice and women's issues. Spoiler alert, women's issues back then were not the same. It was a little less equal pay for equal work and a little more like, Dad, I know you get to choose my husband, but please don't sell me to anyone weird. <laughs> Different times. And we can read these rules and we can get caught up in the nitty gritty of what they mean and how do they apply to us today or do they at all. But let's not miss the point because the point of the law as it's revealed is that at the end of the day, everything in these chapters is happening, um, that God is, is God defining the nation of Israel as a people set apart for him. So as God is revealing the law, as is revealing these things in these chapters between 19 and 32, we see Israel in the middle of this big identity moment, okay? Uh, the Israelites, which is really important because the Israelites have spent generations being slaves. And this kind of systematic oppression that they've lived under for a really long time doesn't always end the moment that the oppressor is physically separated from them, right? I mean, we see this in modern psychology. You're not free until you feel free the physical constraints of it are sometimes not the most important part of the equation. And so it's understandable if the Israelites were to come to Mount Sinai in this passage with a pretty bruised collective psyche. And that's why it's so beautiful to see God taking his people and giving them this new identity. And here's what this identity is. He basically is giving them the calling of a, of a royal priesthood, he's setting them apart. And what that means is he's saying, listen, you're my people and here is how you can contribute to the reconstruction of a broken world. Here is how reality should look. Here is how we can express justice and mercy in everyday life. Now, I doubt any of us have gone up to meet God on a mountain in the midst of a holy cacophony of thunderclaps and lightning but if you have, I'd love to hear about it. But this big, dramatic, defining moment for the nation of Israel does happen for us, albeit in smaller ways. And so, for an example of this, um, I'll just say our identity moments are these little turning points. 
And so they, they happen where you encounter a place or a person that changes you and either tweaks the trajectory of your life by degrees or maybe even puts you on a whole other path entirely. Sometimes these moments happen when we look ahead. When I was working on my master's degree in Dallas, I was a chaplain for Greek life, which means I was a sorority chaplain. And this is not the dream job I would have imagined for myself when I began, because I was like, heels, no thank you, makeup, meh, you know, and all of a sudden, I'm like right in the middle of Greek life. And I loved it. I found out that I loved it because I basically was functioning as this pastor to all these young women. And I found out that I loved pastoral ministry. I loved the process of hearing someone and walking with them and being in their corner. And when possible, to help them relearn or rehear God and faith and truth in ways that even if just for a little bit, sets them free from shame and helps them agree with God on who they are. I loved it. And it was at that point in my life and it wasn't this big thunderclap moment, but it was like weeks and months of going, I love this and I want to do this. And what this means is that whether it's in an official capacity or not, I'm a pastor and I want to pastor people. That was a big identity moment for me. These moments can also happen, though, when we look back. You know, I have a wonderful family and our family tree, like every other's, contains a lot of profound brokenness. And as I got older, I began to realize that the behavior of some of the adults in our family had really impacted me in a negative way. The way anger was expressed as I was growing up, the way discipline was handled, the way conflict was expressed. All of these things had kind of locked me into an identity that was really just lousy with fear and, and shame. And, you know, I, I think my first reaction in any kind of conflict was, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Not a healthy way to go. And so, for me personally, counseling was an amazing tool to begin to look back at the past and reframe it. Because it doesn't take away any of the things that happened, but I was able to name them, name them well, and then see, you know, what parts are these playing in my story? And how can I, you know, kind of mitigate the negative impacts of those things and, and highlight the positive? And that can sound pretty like, oh, well, that's therapy speak. But that was so powerful for an identity moment for me to go, I am not, as a, as a person, my identity is not, I am wrong. Right? And so, looking ahead and looking back, when we do either of these things, we can see that they can kind of come together in this confluence of, of, of what we're realizing about ourselves. And hopefully, if we, are ha if we are in the midst of healthy community and healthy voices and wise voices in our lives, the identity that begins to form, it's through a glass darkly, right? Like, it's never perfect, but begins to match more what God says we are. We begin to agree with God. That is healthy identity. We all have an idea of who we are. We all have an identity. And that identity is so profoundly important because whether you realize it or not, it informs everything you do. It's your operating system, right? 
and it might have some bugs in it, and it might have some issues. We all do. But naming it and seeing what God says about us is so important. That's, you can't really underestimate the power of identity in the decisions we make and in the postures we hold. And so we move to the second part. We move to identity lost. We see that the Israelites are given a really sacred identity. This is, uh, like I said before, the first corporate experience of God's presence. They're given this amazing new uh, kind of name tag to where we are God's people, we are able to kind of co-labor with God in the reconstruction of this broken world. But there's a catch because we see the Israelites make this really interesting choice. Um, after Moses, uh, sorry, Moses, after God descends upon the mountain and comes down kind of uh, to the level of his people in a sense, and there's all the noise and the lightning and the thunder, the Israelites make this really fascinating choice. They could do this thing where they go, oh, that was terrifying. I guess we better get used to that. <laughs> or, oh, that was terrifying. But we trust that God is faithful because he's led us out of Egypt and he's, he's been so faithful. What they do instead is they go to Moses and they're like, that was terrifying. We're not doing that again. You go next time. <laughs> and, and Moses... Begin, emerges not only as the leader of his people, but as the surrogate for their faith. And he's been a messenger. We've seen that all through the delivery of the Israelites. We've seen that through the, the, the journeys in the wilderness. But we see this role begin to kind of take shape because now he is almost the, the, the object or the person that the Israelites are experiencing their faith through. He's the one meeting God. He's the one engaged with the creator while the Israelites do life at the foot of the mountain. After Moses is officially established as God's mouthpiece, God calls him back up the mountain and he goes, leaving this newly set apart people with Aaron, uh, which I really struggle not to call Aaron as we read this. <laughs> <laughs> he leaves this newly set apart people with Aaron in charge for what turns out to be a, in all capital letters, very bad day for the Israelites. Now, if you've read ahead or if you're familiar with the story, you know what happens next. Moses and God are on the mountain for a couple weeks, and the people begin to get antsy because much like the rest of humanity, the Israelites are terrible at being cool when they don't know what's going on. And so some of the people begin assuming that Moses is dead, which I get it. They're in the middle of the wilderness and they haven't seen him for a little while. But what they then begin to do is implement plan B, and that's where we come into uh, chapter 32 today. So plan B goes something like this. Step one, Everybody, take off your jewelry, give it to Aaron. Step two, Aaron, melt everyone's jewelry down and somehow turn all these earrings and armbands into like a cow. And step three, flip the party switch because everyone's going to turn up around this golden statue. <laughs> now, a common understanding of this story is that the Israelites are kind of like, I don't know, who, who here by show of hands has seen the movie A Bug's Life, the Pixar movie? Do you remember not by show of hands, but by nods or giggles. Uh, do you remember the part where there's a line of ants walking 
and this branch kind of falls and bisects the line and then these ants go and this ant doesn't move, just has a branch in front of him and is like, I'm lost! <laughs> yeah? That's the Israelites. <laughs> There's no spiritual object permanence here. They're like, ah, oh, ah, oh, he's gone. Now, a common understanding, though, of this passage is that that happens, and the Israelites come to Aaron, and they're like, you got to make us a new God. You got to make us a new God, Aaron. And Aaron's like, oh, okay. And, and there's evidence for that. But I actually believe that, um, that there's something else going on here. Because in the ancient world, statues of bulls and bull calves weren't necessarily gods. What they often were were pedestals that gods were intended to sit upon. So the Israelites ask Aaron for this statue. Aaron makes it, and then we see in 32 verse 5, Aaron finishes the statue and proclaims that the next day will be a festival to Yahweh. So what at first looks like a pivot to this pagan kind of god might actually be the Israelites just trying to wrap their heads around what happens now that Moses is gone. What happens now that Moses is no longer a spiritual surrogate for them? What happens to our faith when our proxy disappears? And this is really important because the faith of the Israelites we see was really dependent on the experience of a person, of one person. They had a proxy that was Moses. And when Moses was gone, they lost their minds. When Moses was gone, when he wasn't visible, this faith that they experienced through him began to give way, gave way to uh, impatience and desperation. So they make another proxy in this statue. And so maybe this isn't another god, maybe is, this is just the Israelites being human and attempting to forge with their own hands this connection to the divine. One that requires a degree of material sacrifice with their jewelry, but little else. And thus their idol is born. Now, I, I, uh, I pick on Southern Baptists a lot. I have a tremendous amount of affection for them because those, those are my people, right? Um, when I was growing up and learning the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments read a certain way, and I'll just be completely transparent, even though it makes me sound horrible. The first two commandments are, I'm the only God, and don't worship any graven images. And then he gets into like, don't murder, don't steal, you know, classics. And I, as a kid, as a teenager, would read these first two commandments, and I would like, uh-huh, but in my heart would be like, why is God so needy? <laughs> if God is truly this huge, big, amazing God, why is this the first and second commandment? It's before do not kill. So don't worship graven images. And I kind of had this picture in my head of God as this like really insecure supervisor, kind of Michael Scott, like walking around the floor of the company with a world's best boss mug that he purchased for himself, just making sure no one's bad mouthing him. You, you could look at it that way. <laughs> I think that's normal. But let's look at it another way. 
because this was hugely liberating for me. What if idolatry is less God is needy, God needs us to do these things, and more God knows what we need? Because everything in this chapter, God's anger, we see eventually, Moses' response, the people's impatience and desperation. All of this happened because Israel had a faith that was held in place by the experience of another person through Moses. And it's human for them to look for a substitute once he's gone. And just like Moses, the substitutes that we use the things we build or construct with our brain or our own two hands to feel security or love or comfort, they will always let us down. My checking account will hit that number that gives me anxiety. My prayers will not always be answered in the timing that I would prefer or even the way I would prefer. My political party will not always be in charge. I will lose relationships and jobs and dreams. And even the people in my life, maybe the people that I tend to use as a proxy or lean on a little too much, the people that I depend on to be constant, leaders, family, spouses, even pastors, will let us down. They might sometimes even leave us. Uh, So I had, my first job ever was interning for a youth pastor named Chris. Um, And Chris was a mentor to me. Uh, my, My dad was deployed a lot when I was in high school. And Chris was my youth pastor. And I just, I mean, him and his wife, they said jump, I said how high. Like I was in it to win it. And my faith, my idea of faith, was their idea of faith. And because this was, they were, they're great people, but they were, they were a little bit more um, traditional, and so faith meant, as a woman, you are modest, and you are submissive to, to men, Um, you don't watch R-rated movies, you don't listen to music that's not from a Christian label, and these people who invested in me and, and, um, and were a big part of my life, they were my Moses. They were my surrogate. And when they weren't there, I just didn't know what to do. And not surprisingly, they let me down. They're people. They hurt my feelings sometimes. They didn't stay at that church forever. They lived their lives, and when they left, I was devastated. And when my identity and their faith crumbled, what it meant was that I had this opportunity to either just kind of throw in the towel and go, this isn't real, this doesn't work, whatever, or I could lean in and just try to go, okay, God, I'm here. What does this look like? What does it look like for me to experience this firsthand? What does it look like for you to experience your faith firsthand? 
Not through anyone up here, Richard, or your favorite podcaster, or blogger, or vlogger, or, I don't know, LinkedIn account, I don't. (laughs) What does it look like for you to hear voices in, in your life that are healthy, that are, that are good, that you know, have healthy community. But at the end of the day, if those people let you down or disappear, to not equate that with God leaving, like the Israelites do. What I love about, one of the things I love about God is that the more I study, the more I read, the more I walk in faith and talk to these really wise people, I realize that God knows us. He knows that relying on our own creations to connect to him is something that we're going to do just like he knows that it's impossible. It's like trying to lasso the moon. It is a futile human endeavor. And God knows we weren't created to throw our time and our hearts and our energy into futile human endeavors. We were created for more. Nadia Boltz-Weber, who's a pastor that I love, a Lutheran pastor, once wrote that we need a God that exceeds the limits of what we can construct. We need a God who is bigger and more nimble and mysterious than what we could understand or contrive. Otherwise, we are worshiping nothing more than our own ability to understand the divine. And so with this lens, we can look at the Israelites and look at God and we can see that idolatry may be less about personally insulting God and maybe more about protecting ourselves from this corruption of the innate cry of our hearts. We were created for relationship and friendship with the one true God and anything less by its very nature will just leave us dissatisfied We desire God's presence. And this desire can manifest itself in a lot of ways. The Israelites desired God's presence, even as they feared it, even as they really just didn't know what to do with it. If you continue to read in chapter 32, you'll see a lot of things that might fit into the category I mentioned as we began. The Israelites pay dearly for this. And in chapter 33, as we move to our third point, identity restored, we see that after the people repent, Moses encounters God in the tent of meeting. In chapter 33, 12, we see that Moses encounters God and wants to be sure that God is still joining them in their journey, that God is still there and that they, the Israelites, are still his people, that this covenant and this new identity is still theirs even though they've so epically failed like right out of the gate. And God's response to Moses, paraphrased, is you're still mine and I'm still here. And even as I read those words and say them to you now, they just feel like an exhale. It's such a relief to not be responsible for connecting to the divine. It's such a relief. It was not a burden. We were created to bear. And it's such a relief because we live in a world where it's easy to think at any given moment that God has left the building. If you watch the news for more than like 20 seconds, 
you know that everything is pretty much just on fire, or it feels that way. If you look around your life, every single person in here has been, has been touched in some way by, by brokenness, by addiction, by abuse. We bear so many scars, and some of us bear a lot of open wounds still that have lasted for years. And wherever we're at with these scars and these wounds and these, these stories of brokenness that pervade our lives, it is so tempting to find ourselves asking the same questions asked by the Israelites. Where is God? It has been way too long. Why is he not here with me? We're allowed to ask those questions. I want to make sure that we don't read this and we go, the Israelites doubted God and so like a bunch of them died. That's not the case. We're allowed to ask these questions. Just read Psalms. This is like half of it. The psalmist just asking, God, where are you? We're allowed to ask these questions, and it's good to ask these questions. God can handle them. But we cannot let these questions and that sense of where is God, we cannot let that obscure the identity that God has written on our hearts. And the questions and the doubt and the abandonment, they so easily can do that. They can so easily distract us from the identity that God has given. This is not a pass or fail kind of deal. This is not something that some of us are struggling with and the rest of us teach us your ways. We are all doing this. We are all doing this today. And it will continue to happen. We will forget who we are. We will forget who God is. We will forget what God has done. It comes with the territory of being human. But that is not the end of the story. What do we do in these moments? What do we do in these moments? What we learn from the Israelites is that we, and pardon the very Christian-y word, repent. Repent and return. I want to talk about what that means for a moment because I used to think that repent meant to feel so bad about being bad that you just promise not to be bad anymore. And so, God, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to do it again. But in the back of your mind, you're like, I'm going to do it again. It doesn't feel honest, that definition of repentance. And so I'd like to submit to us a new working definition of repentance, maybe for some of us. I challenge us now to see repentance as not a feeling bad about being bad, but as a simply a returning to God. I heard a story once about how difficult a certain Carmelite nun found contemplative prayer. And they would have these, you know, 20-minute or longer sessions of prayer where they would sit quietly and the point of the time was to pray for God. And if you have ADHD like me, nothing sounds worse. I cannot imagine what that's like. But I can imagine and resonate with what she said. She said, during this time of prayer, her mind wandered a thousand different ways. And she was so just heartbroken over this and she confessed to her teacher, Thomas Merton, who's an amazing author um, that I hope some of you are familiar with. He's amazing. 
She confessed this to her teacher, Thomas Merton, and she was shocked by his reply because she was expecting him to to, um, rebuke her. And instead, what he said was, your wandering thoughts are just a thousand opportunities to return to God. In Joel 2, the prophet tells the people to return to God with all your heart. It says, return to God with all your heart, like God knows we often give our hearts to things that are not God. And that's just, it's true and it's it's sad. I piece my heart out to things that cannot love me back. I piece my heart out to the unrequited love of so many false promises and self-indulgences, and by the time I even get to the table of God's grace, I've made lovers of so many things and ideas and hopes and doubts and have given myself to them so completely that there's so little left of my heart to be fed by God's grace because it's been doled out in a million different pieces trying to get its own needs met. And I'm not alone. We rely on every single other thing but God to love us. We waste our hearts and our time on career advancement and saving for the future and saving the world and destroying germs and chasing Pokemon and chasing oblivion through chemical dependency or porn or sex or food or CrossFit. I'm sorry. (laughs) We may even chase it through things like church. Or the next diet plan, or the next spiritual practice that promises to make us whole. And God knows this about us. He knows we're distractible. He knows how much we crave flesh and blood connection with him. And I have to think he's onto this because he gave us Jesus. God didn't say, well, deal with it. You just gotta get over that desire for a connection. Instead, he gave us the connection that won't fail, himself in flesh and blood. And what we learn from the Israelites and Moses is that God meets us where we are. And what we do with that is in our court. Do we make the decision for ourselves, not through someone we respect or through someone that we are dependent on, Do we make the decision for ourselves to lean into his presence? And if we do make that decision to do so, just know it is a decision we have to make over and over and over and over again. To remember and to repent or return is just the in and out of of the Christian breathing system. In repenting, We return not only to God, but to a recognition of the identity he has given us. And we read about this identity in a few verses. The first one I'll share with you is 1 Peter 2.9. And if you would just hear this. For you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. 
Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. This identity that we get from this, this scripture is provided for us through the only mediator that we can depend on, Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah who came to dwell as God and man amongst his people. No golden statue required. We recognize in the words of Tim Keller that idols are not destroyed, they are replaced. And we look to Emmanuel, to Jesus, to step into these spaces of our heart that are so often occupied by dissatisfying things. And we read in Philippians 3 as a prayer for ourselves, these things of the flesh I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. And if these things, these verses are hard for you to believe or hear, that's okay. In the mundane nitty gritty of life, it is hard to feel like a member of the royal priesthood. But if you forget everything else, remember this, remember where we come from. As we read in Genesis 2, we recognize our identity as children of God as it is shown in the creation story where we read that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So remember, it is from dust and the very breath of God that you were created out of divine love. A divine love which mends the pieces of your heart back together whenever you return to it, always, always, always. Remember through the life, death, and resurrection of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, you are loved, you are rescued, and you are free. Remember what your life is. It is a thousand opportunities upon a thousand opportunities to return to God with all your heart. Returning again to the only thing in which we have any true identity, the eternal and divine love of God, the eternal and divine love of God that created you from dust and breath, the eternal and divine love of God that allows you to co-labor with him in the reconstruction of a broken world, the eternal and divine love of God to which you will return after your last breath is done and you are dust again. So remember the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses and frightened Israelites, the God who meets us where we are even if we're not ready for it, the God who has seen your heart and has seen your future and has seen nothing he cannot love. Remember your God and remember the love that is the heartbeat beneath every story in scripture and the words that are its rhythm he is our God, and we are his people, and God is here. <laughs>